Welcome to Physician Interrupted. I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion, and this is part three of a series on the matrix of clinician distress. Part three focuses on grief and trauma, exploring the fuller clinician distress map. We continue our series on the matrix of clinician distress. In the first piece, I posed an overall scenario representative of what a lot of clinicians are experiencing. It contained a mix of elements of three of the most often talked about phenomena affecting healthcare clinicians. In fact, I chose those three in part because I'm working on a national presentation on burnout, and even more significantly, a journalist who's been following the clinician crisis for some time asked my input specifically on compassion fatigue. I thought it'd be a good opportunity to recap our discussion for her reference. Those were the three syndromes being addressed in her current research. So I started writing, hoping to flesh those out further in a succinct way as possible. As you may have discovered, succinct and me are close to an oxymoron. As I was trying to further flesh out these elusive concepts, I kept coming back to this notion of how they're related. Aha! They're all manifestations of distress. And the more I thought about it, the more apparent it became that we're missing the boat on just fixating on burnout. Uh, There's a much larger storm system of distress that's afflicting so many in healthcare. My coaching and consulting work has predominantly been focused on physicians, but I wanted to expand the territory of distress here, as I believe that these distress syndromes affect all of us in clinical health care. Concurrently, I was working on another framework, iterating what's eating physicians. And I started assembling a tick list of stuff, a veritable shopping list of hassles that docs are weighed down by. Keep your eyes out. It's a doozy. You might want to refill your Xanax and Prozac while you're at it, or maybe even get back into anger management. In the second part, we delved into that presented typical scenario in the first part and explored the ubiquitous burnout syndrome, its close relative, compassion fatigue, and the recently articulated, though more elusive, psychophilosophical syndrome of moral injury. While these are now in lots of people's minds, even these three don't really convey the full picture. And in fact, their incidents may not even be the top three. In this piece, part three, turns out the third of five articles. Who knew there was such a flood of distress? I didn't until I began drafting it. We're going to explore additional syndromes that are often conflated with burnout, but actually constitute separate components of the clinician distress matrix. We'll look here at grief and the trauma-related stress syndromes. And then in the subsequent piece, part four, we'll explore the two more prominently occurring clinical mood syndromes, bona fide disorders, that need to be considered in the overall landscape of clinician distress. It's vitally important to distinguish amongst all of these syndromes, seeing them as discrete phenomena which may occur concurrently with their unique tributaries of causality and manifestations, so that you, whether 
the affected clinician or the one who treats and coaches can begin to make sense of what the distressed clinician is experiencing. Grief. For convenience purposes only, I'm here labeling grief as a syndrome. Conventionally, that's what most people equate with the emotional response to the loss of a significant other person in their lives. More precisely, this complex of psychological manifestations in the context of loss is referred to as bereavement. The most appropriate term to describe the emotional reaction accompanying bereavement is grief. Grief is simply deep sadness in the context of personal loss. Bereavement is a normal, healthy human process, as is the accompanying emotion of grief. In effect, bereavement is a unique type of stress reaction in the context of the experience of loss of another with whom one was significantly bonded. It is a loss reaction, or Put it another way, it's a unique category of stress reaction occurring when the stress event is one of loss. When a loss reaction occurs, just as we'll see in the traumatic stress reaction, associative and emotional memory inevitably recall past losses. In doing so, they bring the packaged memory of the totality of their prior bereavement experiences into the present. Thus, in any bereavement, past grief is awakened and combined, to some extent, with the present grief. And this cumulative experience is almost always experienced as one major total grief response until that time that one is able to disaggregate them, pull them apart, and return the prior memory experience package back to its memory storage. The Contagion of Suffering and Loss Bereavement is not just about the immediate loss of the other, but about the loss of their cumulative presence over time with all of its memories of significant events, both good and bad. Further, bereavement may entail recalling and feeling, even empathically experiencing, the lost one's struggle as they grappled with dying. If it entailed suffering, then witnessing that suffering and being helpless in its presence can rise to the level of psychological trauma, thus the concept of traumatic grief. In experiencing the grieving of another in this way, it is similar to a vicarious traumatization where we relive the experience of their trauma in its recounting. Vicarious experiencing of another's loss, too, is associated with sadness. And depending upon our degree of empathic identification and reliving it with that person in this once-removed sort of fashion, it can also intensify our own experience of current, recent, and remote loss. Just as for the grieving one, it's not as though one consciously chooses such recall. It comes unbidden. And this is exactly why those doing high-intensity people work, like healthcare clinicians, need to have an opportunity to do their own psychological work and have access to support. Likewise for the therapist and the coaches, by the way. 
both grief and trauma reactions can be so highly charged that for the coach or therapist, that their intensity is rightly comparable to a hazardous material requiring a hazmat suit and a decompression protocol. Mirror neurons and empathy. In the last decade or so, a new understanding is emerging about the cellular basis for what we might call the empathic reflex. There are specialized neuronal cells in our brains that are messenger nerve cells. They take what we see happening to another and translate it into our own bodily experience. It's essentially an autonomic experiential empathy. You may have wondered why you flinch at an explosion on a movie screen or jerk your head away when the character, likable or not, on the screen gets a bare-fisted hook to the face. It's as though you experience it concurrently. That's the wonder of mirror neurons, actually discovered by monkeys. Well, not literally. The astute animal lab assistant in Italy who discovered this took note of a caged monkey intensively watching him as he opened his backpack. When he pulled out a banana and began peeling it and then put it to his mouth, the monkey, staring intensely at the entire process and especially at the banana in his hand, mimicked his very movements. But the monkey wasn't trying to be a mimic, as far as we know. So intense was the monkey's perceiving, he or she was vicariously eating the banana. Grief, my own and my engagement with others. Clearly, clinicians experience grief like any other emotionally sensate human being. They have families and loved ones in their circle of friendship. And as the work in healthcare can be so intense and prolonged beyond that of a conventional nine to five non people work job, a significant bond often develops among clinicians. A similar bond develops between the clinician and patient, especially those one works with over a sustained period of time. After all, it is health care. And the most important healing ingredient is exactly that care. When you care, you become more attached to that person. You are more engaged with that person than the rest of the people in your acquaintance circle. And by this very nature, you are susceptible to the experience of loss. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly be broken. The only place outside of heaven where you can be entirely safe from the dangers of love is hell. That's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Our scenario, in part, touched on the experience of a clinician experiencing grief due to the loss of a colleague and also of patients. Let's look at this more deeply. As a clinician providing health care, I thus experience three clusters of grief. That from my own loss of my colleague, my loss of my struggling to breathe patients, and that sadness which I feel for the families and friends of my dying patients, i.e. my empathic grief. Given the immensity of loss worldwide, the sheer 
awesomeness of the devastation caused by this highly dangerous virus that has turned the civilized world into an emergency room, it is likely that we experience a collective grief. But it's one I suspect that we can't yet articulate as we've not fully become aware of the collective unconscious. This was Carl Jung's mind-blowing hypothesis, one so radical that Freud himself had to distance himself from it, preferring to focus on the existence of the individual unconscious mind with all of its wild capers. That was, he thought, already too radical for the supremely rational Victorian mind and sexually repressed bodies to take in. A collective unconscious? With no boundaries? Good Lord, he must have thought. We have a hard enough time keeping our own unconscious mob contained. Two types of clinician grief-based sadness. First, immediate grief at our own loss. This is the clinician's own experience of the loss of someone. If we have currently lost a dear family member, friend, or colleague to COVID, our grief is that of losing a loved one. We grieve for our loss and the fact of their loss. Likewise, the loss of a dear patient under our care. We experience grief. Let us also recognize that while grief is a state of emotion and part of the process of bereavement, a variant of sadness, grieving is a process. It is the process of enabling and voicing grief. And it is a process that has its own timeline of completion. Just as physical wound repair is the process of tissue healing, so too grieving is the process of emotional healing from loss. Now, there are two types of sadness at others' loss. First, empathic sadness. As we know what it is to lose someone, and we have experienced that sadness, we vicariously experience the patient's family's experience of grief. That vicarious experience may also awaken our own, perhaps still raw, grief. Our empathic experience, truly a form of emotional intelligence, serves to inform us more deeply of the inner dimensions of the emotional experience of another. Now, there's also sympathetic sadness. Not all felt sadness is empathy-based. In heartfelt sympathy, we feel deeply for the bereaved. We see and feel their pain closely. But our response is not so directly rooted in our own experience of loss, though it is nearly impossible that it doesn't stir memories of our own at some level. As clinicians, this is the type of sadness we most often manifest and feel in response to the loss of patients, and in fact convey in words and gestures to the grieving other. The two are very closely related, the former activating our own lived experience of loss, the other recognizing the more general power of the other's loss and recognizing the immensity of their grief and feeling sad for their loss. 
But in the sympathetic variety, we don't experience it as though it comes from a place of intimately connecting with our own loss. The difference, I believe, is rooted in the degree of personal experience of bereavement that is mobilized. Dimensions of affective engagement. Let's take a closer look at the varieties of a clinician's expression of sadness and concern. It can range from remote to intimately close. First, affective acknowledgement or verbal restatement of affect. This is where I make note that I see, hear, sense your feeling of sadness. We say things like, you seem sad. I see how sad you must feel. Something tells me you're hurting. These are forms of affective acknowledgement and have their own healing power. Compassion. Here I have a gentle, loving appreciation of the impact of the other's loss. This is not sadness per se, so much as it is gentleness and kindness in the presence of another's loss, a respectful tenderness with your offering supportive sentiments for the other and wishing endurance for them to manage their loss. By its nature, compassion is more love-based than it is sadness-based. Sympathy. Sympathy is the expression of sadness for their loss as I recognize the power of that loss for them as I know the power of such loss. Sympathy is really a blend of compassion as well as some degree of experiencing the feeling of sorrow. It is a humanitarian sorrow, one born of the shared experience of loss. Empathy. Empathy is the deeper inner experience to some level of the sadness that another feels, generally through a shared experience of personal loss one that evoked similar sadness in me. As an example, which I don't mention in the written article, if someone has lost a grandmother, and I too have lost a grandmother and felt her loss greatly, I identify with that person's experience of their grandmother's loss in a wholly different way than if I didn't have that experience of losing my own grandmother and feeling great sadness. So in a way, I feel your sadness because of the sadness it awakens in me. That's the connection. By sharing, I don't mean overt sharing of each other's story, though that can occur in some fashion. Rather, there is a life experience of loss that we have in common. And if your experience is similar to mine, I know, really know in the marrow of my emotional limbic system, your experience of the immensity of that loss. You'll note that these are levels of affective arousal and engagement around the theme of loss and its stress reaction. Now, admittedly, I really want to stress this. This is my own idiosyncratic triaging of levels of affective engagement. I don't think you'll find it written anywhere else. But over the course of my career, this understanding has resonated, and its truth becomes more real for me. 
again, is not hard and fast science. Just one coach clinician's framework on understanding emotional experience and affective engagement. Nor, by the way, is it a value judgment. One manifestation is not better than the other. There are times when affective restatements can be optimal. There are other times when sympathy is optimal. And other times when we can allow our empathy, and I stress, allow our empathy, to be manifested through such emotional attunement. And they each have their shortcomings in situations. Affective restatement can sometimes seem too detached. Likewise, intense emotional expression can seem too intense and overwhelming, even burdening to the other. Intense loss and recurrent loss can have profound psychological impacts. Experiencing recurrent loss or witnessing the recurrent loss and grief of others almost invariably has a cumulative effect on us. Further, single or recurrent loss experienced by ourselves or witnessed by us as experienced by others can reach a degree of anguish that experiencing or witnessing such loss can become psychologically traumatic. And we may experience as an exponentially powerful, sometimes disabling grief. One either has to find a way to manage this and make sense of it with the help of others, or one needs to step away from this now nearly toxic degree of sadness. Again, that's why clinicians and why those who help them need support services. Knowledgeable support services are truly vital to help a clinician and to help coaches and therapists too navigate this experience. Without support and assistance with framing it, making sense of it, hearing it out, learning to cope with it, one is prone to a clinical mood disorder. And that mood disorder, as we'll see, can reach such intense proportions that one may experience a major depressive episode, even with psychotic symptoms. We'll discuss depression and clinical mood syndromes in part four. Now we turn our attention to another powerful source of stress, examination of which I believe we, healthcare clinicians as well as coaches and therapists, have been severely inattentive in understanding clinician distress, and that is trauma. Trauma-related stress syndromes. Now, let's look at fright. It's an automatic, that is, autonomic and nervous system-based reflexive response to threatening-type stress. Such intense stress invokes fear, which is the conscious emotional experience of the fright response. The emotional state of fear combined with the body's physiological fright response cascade, can literally overload the brain circuits and activate a neuronal fail-safe bypass circuit, putting the brain in emergency operation and virtually shutting down the customary cognitive processes we associate with thinking. In a way, the brain, hardware, and the mind, its software, concurrently go on autopilot and into emergency mode. DSM-5, 
the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual version 5 significantly rearranged the core components of both short-term PTSD, formerly known as the acute stress reaction, and the longer persisting variant, uh, variant uh, we've known as PTSD. The acute and post-acute trauma stress reactions are nearly identical. Now, note here that I'm changing a bit of the phraseology of DSM-5 only to convey this notion of a shorter-term and longer-term trauma stress reaction. For practical purposes, except for the onset and duration parameters, both the acute traumatic stress reaction and post-traumatic stress disorder are nearly identical. One way to phrase this is that the acute stress cascade is what happens during and immediately after the stress event and may continue over the course of a limited ongoing period, up to a month. The post-acute traumatic stress response is what persists beyond that acute event window of time. And practically speaking, what distinguishes a response from a disorder is the degree of impairment of actual function in the various domains of one's life. In essence, morph, a, re, a response morphs into syndrome, which can morph into clinical disorder, i.e. a bona fide illness, based on symptom intensification and their degree of impact on function. The key point here is that these two stress response variants to a particular type of stress event a psychologically traumatic event, are essentially identical. When a person directly experiences or directly witnesses a powerful event that causes them to feel fright or horror, that event may be said to be of a psychologically traumatic nature. It's a blow to one's sensibility, and it evokes a predictable cascade of physiological responses. Your physiological reaction to that experienced event causes you to activate the fright response cascade and to feel fear about your own safety or helplessness. One may have a similar fright cascade in witnessing others experiencing a life-threatening or horror-evoking event. I include horror here because I see it as a shock to one's sensibility and such is essentially an assault on one's fundamental worldview schema, their way of understanding and going about living their day-to-day -day reality. Your emotional response could cause you to feel horror or severe disgust and revulsion, since fear is an affect generally requiring conscious recognition of emotion, for example, I feel afraid, you may not get to that level of conscious awareness of your fear emotion. In a traumatic event, you may be cognitively, emotionally, and physically frozen, immobilized. That's the high-voltage power of the fright cascade. Your experience of that event happening to you or witnessing it happen to others may overwhelm your capacity to consciously respond and may cause a freeze response in which you become immobilized. 
And the brain, of course, during that period goes on bypass. And therefore, consciousness, in terms of the appreciation of an emotion, is not fully working at that time. But be assured, the event is being recorded. After the psychologically traumatic event, and for a sustained period, you generally feel aftershocks of the traumatic event. These take various manifestations. Among them, these are really the three uh, triad uh, clusters of symptoms. Re-experiencing, hyperarousal, and avoidance. Re-experiencing. You re-experience the event in a form of an unbidden flashback. It comes back to you. You have restless sleep and dream about the event in various ways. You brood about and are preoccupied by the event. Hyperarousal. Your awareness is heightened about your environment in anticipation of a repeat traumatic event. You're on guard. You have a startle response. You're restless, continuously on edge, or you may have difficulty sleeping. You unconsciously impose your interpretation of ordinary events in the framework of that traumatic event. Avoidance. You avoid situations in which you might directly be harmed or which may provoke your recalling the event and thus generating a virtual re-experiencing of the original event. You alter your life routine to create a virtual capsule around you so as to avoid re-experiencing the traumatic event. Remember, the power of the traumatic event generally overloads cognitive processing. As a result, it induces a trauma event-related stress response cascade consisting of the above characteristic cluster of symptoms. Note here that what is being underscored is that a traumatic stress event has a unique cascade of manifestations fundamentally based in the fright response. Non-traumatic stress events, or your standard ordinary chronic stress, do not evoke such a fright response, and this is the crucial difference. Now, this is not to say that non-traumatic events are of less severity or impact, Major life stress events, too, can have immense psychological impact. But their presence may not evoke that trauma-invoked fright response and thus may not have these particular manifestations. For example, intrusively recalling past fright experiences, re-experiencing the event, avoidance, hyperarousal, etc., the demarcation here, born out of the traumatic stress literature, which was heavily influenced by observing the emotional impact of the traumatic violence experienced by combatants, is important in two respects. First, certain events are likely to cause a uniquely characteristic cascade of reactive manifestations that when the event is identified and meets the general sense of a traumatic event, one is likely to experience uh, a, a see a symptom expression from among this clustering of customarily trauma-associated fright symptoms, the ones we articulated above. And second, conversely, when one, especially 
the person who's making the diagnosis, a clinician, treater, or a coach, sees or picks up on one's diagnostic radar certain symptoms, especially when they are occurring as a cluster, one should be highly suspicious that one may be dealing with a stress syndrome uniquely related to an original traumatic event. Reasoning in this way, and perhaps this is true of all diagnostic reasoning processes, is beneficial for several reasons, and two of which are particularly key here. First, once you, as a diagnostician, hypothesize the presence of a named syndrome, you then put into your memory all of the criteria of that syndrome, and you are then compelled to explicitly explore for the presence of the other symptoms often occurring in that cluster. Now, by explicitly, I don't mean overtly or in a rote checklist manner or intrusively. And too many of these instruments are applied in this checklist manner, which is really quite problematic. Rather, one is to have a heightened awareness and alertness for their presence. There are a variety of ways to pick up symptoms without actually going through a symptom checklist. And second, once you are confident that the symptom aggregation that you pull together fits that syndromic clustering, for example, PTSD, you're now able to orient yourself toward the most appropriate, well-informed remedy. The treatment approach to trauma-related stress is different than that you might select for non-traumatic stress or a mood syndrome or grief-induced stress. And like antibiotics to certain bacterial infections, some classes of antibiotics work for one type of infection and not another. So not all antibiotics work for all infections. One has to be intentionally selective in the choice of therapeutic interventions as Pursuing the incorrect one either doesn't work while the patient continues to suffer or even gets sicker, or the ill-chosen remedy itself harms the patient further. All of these must be taken into consideration. While definitional criteria for an acute stress reaction have varied over the course of the Diagnostic Classification Manual, it's fair to summarize the elements that have stayed as part of the classification. And as we said, the acute stress reaction is really uh, an immediate form of PTSD. The two main variants of the traumatic stress syndrome First, the acute stress reaction or disorder, we'll abbreviate it as ASD. The symptoms listed above at the time you experience a traumatic stress event and or may become prominent in the immediate and short-term period after the event. So those symptoms are happening immediately. When these symptoms are manifesting within the first 30 days of the original traumatic event, they constitute the syndrome known as acute stress disorder. This temporary demarcation was made as studies seem to suggest that most traumatic stress symptomatology resolved or at least significantly lessened during this 30-day window. 
post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder, abbreviated PTSD, when the symptoms persist beyond 30 days from the original event or even emerge more prominently 30 days after the event, the syndrome is now properly considered to represent PTSD. It's held that PTSD can occur without the symptomatology of an acute stress disorder preceding it. Now, I don't know what the literature says on this to support this. It seems unlikely, and I've personally not experienced it in my practice. Just about everyone whom I've treated with PTSD recalls having been immobilized in the early phase with acute stress reaction symptoms. It's also held that PTSD can newly manifest after a prolonged interval since the initial event. Now, this is sometimes known as delayed or late-onset PTSD. This is entirely more plausible, as a variety of containment mechanisms may have kept the acute stress syndrome at bay. Perhaps that may explain why it's possible to have PTSD without the acute stress reaction. The prospect of encountering a lethal disease from which one could die, i.e. COVID, and having an intense fear reaction accompanied by experiencing a cluster of the symptoms of acute stress reaction would certainly seem to qualify as sufficiently traumatic and properly warrant its proper categorization as either acute stress response or disorder or PTSD. Now, why is all this fine symptom checklist detail important? Because the treatment for burnout, and for that matter, for each of the other syndromes, is different from the treatment approach to trauma-related syndromes. In fact, the very approach to interview of the person and investigation for the presence of the syndrome and the elicitation of the history, the circumstantial detail pertaining to the traumatic events is dramatically different. In trauma, the treater, and here including both therapists as well as coaches, must tread lightly, sensitively, as intrusive, matter-of-fact questions can be experienced as assaultive and not only cause pain, and retreat, but actually cause reactivation of the entire cascade as though the traumatic event were newly occurring, uh, that is, engendering a flashback, basically. It's also important, as healthcare is so laden with patients' traumas, and sometimes even physically violent danger to the clinicians themselves. In the National Academy of Medicine's Exploring Clinician Burnout Project, undertaken several years ago, a very innovative, wide-reaching project, one study examining ICU nurse distress indicated that the symptom clustering obtained from the carefully constructed, syndrome-informed interviews demonstrated that the type of distress they were manifesting was predominantly more indicative of the syndrome of acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder than it was of burnout. Thus, the careful elicitation, the careful elucidation of symptoms through sensitive inquiry will help define the syndromes and thus guide the selection of the most appropriate therapeutic remedies. 
Now, as discussed previously, but again, deserving of mention here, one can have concurrent syndromes. Yes, you can have burnout and PTSD. Yes, you can have moral injury and PTSD and major depression and grief. Yes, you can have all of them concurrently. And as is drilled into all physicians' heads throughout training, the lack of improvement in the patient's condition should always lead you to step back and question whether you've got the right diagnosis to begin with and whether perhaps you might be missing something concurrently going on. Secondary or vicarious traumatization is called secondary PTSD. You know how it is when you watch a movie and you're scared out of your wits or moved to tears? That's the power of storytelling that is true to real experience. You experience that character's fear or pain or sadness. Just as with vicarious grief, once removed grief in listening to another, one can experience a psychologically traumatic event vicariously. This is especially true of those exposed to witnessing, whether through direct observing another's trauma or hearing the stories of those who have experienced major life-threatening trauma. Like watching a movie in which we are pulled into the other's experience, experiencing it with them, we can become traumatized by their experience as though we too we're experiencing or witnessing it directly. Such is the power of stories that they can bring the listener to the scene of the traumatic event and have them virtually relive the experience of the traumatic event with the storyteller, the one who experienced it. Most people may watch an intensely engaging life-realistic movie maybe one or two times a month. They're intense. Healthcare clinicians, on the other hand, watch hundreds, and I put watch in quotation marks, watch hundreds of real-life dramatic movies each and every month. Now, ironically, this being moved by another's trauma story is both the risk and, at the same time, the healing power of empathic attunement. All who witness the life-threatening traumatic experience of another, whether directly seeing it happening or via intense relived as though presently occurring storytelling, are vulnerable to vicarious traumatization and secondary PTSD. Now that we've covered burnout, compassion fatigue, moral injury, grief, and trauma, we can move into the more clinically significant syndromes, the so-called mood disorders or uh, the ones of major depressive episode and general anxiety disorder. It's not meant to be a full recap of DSM-5, by the way. So we're just going to focus on those two mood disorder syndromes. Now, before we close, let me just say, if you're enjoying these articles, and of course I mean enjoying in quotes, you know, in a broad sense, um, and you haven't yet subscribed to my free Physician Interrupted newsletter on Substack, which is where this is published, doing so will alert you automatically 
when that next brilliant article is posted. If you're on CPR's mailing list, and only on that and not on the Substack Physician Interrupted mailing list, the CPR mailing list is one which I send out really very sporadically and in which I happen to mention that I've written these articles amongst other newsy items, like which laws the medical regulatory therapeutic complex is likely violating, or how many quasi-freebie curbside consults we've done at CPR. Uh, You may not know that the Physician Interrupted Substack blog mailing list is a separate thing. I wouldn't have noticed it either, probably. I may figure out a way to combine them without imposing on either crowd, but just be reminded that uh, the CPR mailing list is separate from the Substack mailing list, and uh, you may want to be on both of them. Uh, But, uh, you know, I I have uh, too much on the plate here to try to figure out how to work Uh, blending those two together right now and I don't want to impose upon either crowd so you may get both uh, and you may get one so get on this list if you want to be notified as soon as each article comes out if it's a simply just passing interest and you'll get notified in due time in the CPR newsletter which manages to take shape every few full moons or so that's not especially speedy and no I assure you You're not going to get a lot of yada yada in your inbox, not only because it's against the rules and it it really irks intelligent people like you with whom I really want to share this material, but also because I simply don't have the time to write a bunch of junk. So, hope you have enjoyed this, as they say in quotes, uh, and uh, gotten something from it. Uh, Stay tuned. Part four, we're going to cover the clinical uh, mood syndromes. Part five, what a doozy. Uh, We're going to be talking about litigation stress and that infamous medical regulatory therapeutic complex, the boards and PHPs and those people who control our careers. And we're also going to be talking about one of the least examined sources of stress in medicine today, and that is the culture of medicine, the discriminatory aspect and the hostile, bullying culture that afflicts so many. Thanks for listening. Talk soon. Take care. Stay well.